All right, welcome back. I am here on location in Urbana, Illinois. Champ no? Champagne. Champagne. This time it's champagne. This time we're in Champagne. Fine. Uh, with here with Dr. Alan Nathan, one of the world's experts in uh, baseball physics. And uh, Alan, great to have you back. Good to be here. So I think our third episode together, which is, man. Yeah, yeah. It's good to be most, have it. Our most uh, popular guest. So <laughs> well. we were just talking about Tokyo off, uh, off camera, off audio, and I'm hope- hopefully going to miss Sabre Seminar this year to do a little coaching tour in, in Tokyo with some youth kids. But you're just extolling the virtues of business class, which I don't know anything about. But Well, well, uh, I don't know a whole lot about, but on a long, I think it was a 14-hour trip from Chicago to Tokyo, uh, it makes a huge difference. Uh, you, it's much, much more comfortable. So did you, like, that's what, like a 12-hour flight? More than that? Uh, I think it was more like 14. Yeah. I, 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 I'm not recalling exactly. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was something like 14 hours. I think and so, you know, it's very comfortable. You could easily sleep on the flight, which I did. And I, when I fly to Europe, I can hardly ever sleep on the flight. But on yeah. this, in business class, it was very, very comfortable. Food was good. And uh, you were there doing official work, right? Uh, I was there uh, actually uh, as part of an NCAA committee that was that we had been invited by the Japanese uh, who were interested in some of the things that NCAA was doing regarding uh, 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 bat performance, regulating the performance of aluminum composite bats. Uh, the NCAA had been working on this for a decade already by the time we went over there. And uh, what the uh, Japanese were doing was by comparison, pretty amateurish, I would say. Well, what level was that for? Is that for their, not for their major leagues, but? Uh, no, for, for their amateur level. But amateur baseball is a big deal thing in Japan. So one of the things that I actually ended up doing is we, we went to, I can't remember where that was, uh, but the, the Koshien uh, High School Baseball Tournament. Mm-hmm. That is a huge, huge thing. With uh, and so I we got to go to a few of those games and uh, experience what it's like to see Japanese baseball and uh, it's a different brand of baseball I would say a lot of small ball a lot of bunting yeah you, uh, and then the organized cheering sections really took me by <laughs> surprise it was a very very loud. Uh, and uh, th- but just an enthusiastic bunch of people. But their their efforts at the time, this was now ten years ago, uh, in regulating bat performance was really way way behind what we've been doing in the U.S. Yeah. So what like what kind of bats were they using? I mean, it's all they're, they're using aluminum bats, or and I guess at the time even composite bats, which are which in principle are even better. But they, their techniques for trying to regulate the performance was just. Uh, there almost was no regulation or performance. Now, what they have done since then, I I really don't know. Uh, I suspect they must have adopted some kind of uh, standards uh, because I think it would be be very hard for the professional teams to sort of properly evaluate Mm -hmm. uh, amateur players uh, if they're using bats that are, you know, the, the kind of things that we're using in this country maybe 15 to 20 years ago. Yeah, even like within my 14U team that I coach, most of our kids are swinging minus threes, but a couple still have minus fives. Mm-hmm. And so if we're all doing like the same activity in the batting cage, 
balls coming off their bats. It's like, oh, you both hit 75, but you're using a minus five, so you're not quite as good. Yeah, <laughs> as no, is. no, you have to take all that into account. And now there's, there's now, so the NCAA game has been pretty stable regarding bats since the 2011 season mm-hmm. when the so-called BB core bats were adopted. There is a new change this year in youth baseball, which is uh, the the uh, the uh, umbrella organization for that is called USA Baseball. They're based in North Carolina, and they uh, have they adopted a couple of years ago new standards for youth bats, including little league, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, w- will be implemented now for the first time this year. So it's called the USA Bat. Oh, I haven't and, heard of that. I gotta. Yeah, I no, get it's 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 new. I mean, the, the literally for the first time since. Jane, what ages does this govern? Are these like the two and a quarter inch kind of skinny barrels, or uh, two and well, for sure that, but also even t- uh, two and three up to two and three quarter inch, I yeah. think. But yeah, so it so uh, this umbrella organization, uh, USA Baseball, includes Little League, Pony League, Babe Ruth League. There are a bunch of others. I don't yeah. remember them now. And all, uh, I mean, they they it, uh, they left it up to the individual leagues to make a decision as to whether they would use that standard. And all of them agreed to, except for one, the U Triple S A. Oh, really? Uh, has decided they will stick with their previous standard, which is hmm. uh, more lively bats. Yeah. Huh. And so you've been going to some U of I games recently. Yeah. So the, one of the themes I think for this episode is a little bit about technology and how it's continuing to change. I mean, it seems like getting more rapid each year. So you said they have FlightScope at their field now? Yeah. So uh, so it, more generally, uh, I think college teams all around the country are starting now to really get involved in the kinds of technology that have been in Major League Baseball for a few years, such as the TrackMan radar system or their competitor, FlightScope. Uh, one of the uh, s- s- some really good teams, uh, such as uh, Coastal Carolina, which won the NCAA tournament a couple of years ago, uh, uh, University of Iowa has uh, got a, uh, a huge grant from one of you know one of their alumni or a, a, a donation from one of their alumni, and they've used that to try to expand their. Uh, Technology. They have TrackMan. They have Rapsodo. They have PitchGrader. I don't know if you're familiar with PitchGrader. No, not yet. So PitchGrader is actually a, sort of a software company where they take your data from TrackMan or FlightScope, and they produce all kinds of useful statistical information. Beautiful, mm. pretty graphics that show you, you know trajectories of things that you can rotate in three dimensions and things like that. Um, So anyway, back to the University of Illinois, uh, the U of I decided uh, just about a year ago that they really were falling behind and they better get involved with this too. So I uh, worked with them to some extent with their assistant coaches. Uh, uh, Drew Dickinson is their pitching coach and course we had a demo at mm-hmm. uh, at your place uh, yeah. with Rapsodo uh, and Adam Christ is their batting coach and he was interested uh, also in these things so they had a bunch of demos uh, from various products and decided on getting FlightScope which is uh, a competitor to TrackMan so it's a Doppler radar system that tracks the baseball 
so it tracks both the pitch baseball and the batted ball. It's a portable system. It's a bit more portable than TrackMan. I mean, TrackMan has two different versions of their system. The, they have their stadium system that's permanently mounted in stadium. Big black, like square. Right, mm-hmm. right. It looks like a high, you know, like a, a big screen, flat screen TV, actually. Yeah. Uh, and then they, they also have a portable version. Uh, the flight scope people claim that their portable version works better than TrackMan's. I don't know if it does or not, but uh, the TrackMan system, I do know people who have used it have trouble using it indoors. There's just too much interference with the radar, hmm. too many surfaces that could bounce off, the radar can yeah. bounce off from. And FlightScope claims that they've solved that problem. I don't know if they have or not. But anyway, uh, given that it's a portable system, it could be used in bullpens, it could be used in batting cages, and it can actually be used in the game. So last Wednesday, the Illini had their home opener, and they had the the FlightScope set up uh, behind home plate up just in front of the press box. And they accumulated some data. I haven't actually seen the data yet. And they'll, they have another home. They, they actually played over the weekend in Carbondale, like in southern Illinois. They brought it with them there, and they play another game tomorrow. They'll be using it. So they're, they're, mm, I, think they cool. pl- I think they play in Bloomington uh, maybe later this week. I'll have to check the schedule. I, I know they ISU, you know, play, I think. Yeah, ISU at least a couple times a year. Anyway, so, uh, no, so not only are they getting more in the way of technology, uh, they're, they also are starting to – get serious about analytics so there's a student of mine his name is Charlie Young he's a a sophomore uh, joint astronomy computer science major Uh, so he he and I have been working together he was at the Sabre seminar last year Mm -hmm. and gave a talk Uh, and uh, so he's now pretty heavily involved with the Illini doing analytics for them so uh, they're really starting to get serious about that and I think that's a growing trend around the country yeah, well, obviously, you know, everyone, it's going to trickle down at some point because we're all going to be graded on what scouts are looking for, and scouts are now have all these, you know, objective metrics that they're searching for. Um, have you read Big Data Baseball by Travis Saltrick? I, when it first came out, I... I know it's I not prob- super recent, but... Yeah, I no, I, a few years it. ago, I read maybe half of it. I actually saw my name in it even, uh, but uh, I, I'm not sure I finished the whole thing. Uh, I, 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 I say I read about half of it when it first came out, and then I got sidetracked and never did finish it. Mm-hmm. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting, so it's, I guess it's mostly written about the pirates and, yeah. uh, and, and how they uh, got involved with new technologies with analytics one of the people that's featured in that book is mike fitzgerald Mm -hmm. uh and uh he actually now is with the diamondbacks is he so yeah uh, when the diamondbacks brought in a whole new front office a year ago uh he joined the team there and so they've been actually quite successful they also stole bunch of Red Sox <laughs> front office people, their general manager, their man, their uh, bench coach, uh, some of the other front office people. So uh, yeah, they've, they've built a whole new team of people uh, in, uh, in Arizona, and Mike plays a very big role in that. Yeah, so I guess he was one of the leading analysts that was kind of getting everyone on board, because they talk about, you know, in the book, Russell Martin being one of the big forces that helped the Pirates turn it around in his pitch framing. Right. And then Clint Hurdle getting everyone to buy in and, and being a good people person of a manager. And uh, the book just in general had a big feel of 
like Moneyball. It just had a very similar feel. Yeah, it's they, sort of it's almost like Moneyball too. I mean, it's yeah, the next low sort of budget the next team thing. using right. outside the box means to compete. Right. So it was interesting. Yeah, and yeah, I think you're going to see more more of that. I mean, the, they talk about how at the end, you know, like the cats out of the bag. So after that first year where they were kind of using catch for, or catcher framing, pitch framing as like one of their weapons after that first season, like everyone had it and it was like too late. To yeah, no, that's, that's the story. Really the story of Moneyball. really what Moneyball, you know, on base percentage was the, the, the undervalued metric. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think teams could have an advantage for a short amount of time on that. And then other people discover it or yeah. it becomes public. And then, then you have to find something else to sort of get a competitive advantage. So it's a sort of a never ending game. Yeah. And you wonder how it's going to start coming back the other way. So one of our kids who's now in college had, uh, he sent me his stats from his first two starts. He's excited. He's got 14 innings, seven hits, no walks, seven Ks and a minuscule ERA to boot. And he was just kind of telling me, he's like, you know, even just watching in my first, you know, couple weeks as a college baseball player he's like you can just see the difference between just how much locating matters you know he's like i got I, there's guys on my team that throw harder than me because he's a upper 80s kid right now uh as a freshman he's like there's guys that throw harder than me but they're just so consumed by throwing as hard as they can and they don't locate and they don't pitch super well and so you like with all the pitch grading and all this stuff like we know harder harder is better but at what point like is 91 on the black better or worse than 94 on the outer third you know like where do these start to like sort of equalize is 91 on the black better than 95 down the middle probably you know in most 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 cases but yeah well you're you're much more of an expert on these things than i am and i but i i'm always i always uh, am amazed at pitches who who can locate i mean who can really hit, hit hit it on the black or even a little bit off the black you know with good framing having it called a strike or at least convincing the batter that it looks like a strike. Um, and that's that, kind of what's predicated with all the, the pitch framing stuff, because if you're a pitcher that misses over the middle of the plate, pitch framing doesn't help you too much. But if you're a pitcher like Dallas Keuchel, who continually misses off the plate, now the catcher's going to give you some of those more that, you know, those pitches are going to be borderline ball right. strike. Yeah. So as pitch framing gets more and more important, you wonder if pitchers are going to start to conform to that too. Like, hey, I'm better off maybe easing off a little bit missing off the plate which everyone knows that that's how you should do it but yeah i mean it's it's sort of interesting to see the game be, you know evolving before our very eyes mm-hmm. i mean you really you know uh we get more information and 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 the players somehow learn how to adapt to that increased yeah. information and, and and situation so uh i i don't know if that's always been the case with baseball because i i haven't been paying I wasn't paying as much attention to it 20 years ago as I do as I am now, but uh, it, so did did players always learn how to adapt to, to changes? I, I don't I don't know the answer to that, but they certainly seem to be doing that now. Yeah, I mean, but you know, on one hand, is the fact that there is so much measured now, so exit velocity and throwing velocity, where kids at younger levels, well, you know, all the amateur levels are just trying to boost those numbers up. How hard can I hit the ball? without respect to maybe the quality of their at-bats and all that other stuff. You know, like you get a kid at a showcase who hits 9-8 off the tee, but and we've had those kids in our program who are like, man, we're excited about him in the winter. He's hitting 96 off the tee, and then he just can't hit right. <laughs> a varsity high school pitcher. 
So yeah. it's like, yeah, what no, are we, it's hard to focus on both. So you're, right. uh, you've heard of that new technology. Is it, um, uh, what is it? It's the pitch recognition system. Have you seen it? It's floating around the web. It's pretty cool. I, I have not, I've heard about it, but I have not, I can't I, think of I the name not, at the moment. I have not seen it. I should have it in my notes, but. So this is like a computer. Uh, they record system. a lot of pictures, um, and they give you, or right out of the hand, like a snapshot of, and then you have to determine, you hit a button, whether it's going to be a ball or a strike, oh, whether you'd swing yeah. or not. It just yeah. helps you with your pitch recognition. So, yeah, I've heard about these, I've heard about these programs that 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 are that are used uh for that purpose and uh i mean that's a that's really a great thing uh actually there is a there was a guy here at the university of illinois who uh who who uh, he's retired now but he was in the kinesiology department this was maybe 15 years ago or so uh he, uh, he was uh developing his own system for doing that he was uh uh, uh, using motion analysis cameras to track pitch balls and then uh, t- different types of pitch balls and then creating computer videos and for exactly that purpose to, to yeah. for, you know, for, for players to try to uh, learn how to recognize pitches, lo- both, both pitch type, pitch location, uh, speed, and things like that. Uh, f- from these little video games he created. Yeah, and I think it was the book The Sports Gene where they talk a lot about it and how, A, major leaguers have way better than uh, average vision, like 2012 on average or something, and they also just succeed because they have such a huge directory of pitches that they've seen. They talk about like Albert Pujols, how, how many pitches he's seen his career, how you almost like can't throw him anything that his brain hasn't like processed before, like, oh, that spin, that starting location – like it just has more data on which to figure out whether right. he should swing or not, and uh, so the question is, I guess, at younger levels where kids don't play as much backyard baseball, maybe, um, how do you get them more of that? You know, how can you shorten the learning curve for an eighteen-year-old or a twenty-one-year-old? Yeah. And and this is this is one way to do it. This, yeah. this this system. Yeah. Yeah, it seems interesting. I have not actually seen this in use, but it would, it would be quite interesting. Do you have that at your own facility? No, or? but we've been thinking about it. We saw it at the uh, at the ABA, ABCA convention. I think it was very highly received. A bunch of people were talking about it. I've seen it floating around on Twitter a little bit. Mm-hmm. Just the name escapes me right now. I'm, I'm frustrated with myself, but um, they actually used the Southern Illinois Miners uh, minor league baseball team mm-hmm. two hours south of here as a lot of the sus- or the uh, subjects for it so they filmed a lot of minors guys i think they said they paid them like 60 bucks for five innings of work or something like that just to get all their throws on on video so it's pretty cool Mm -hmm. yeah and we've been using modus in our facility so my 14u team is outfitted with that um and that's going to be a a cool experiment just to get comfortable with that you you actually have that yeah so our our whole team has uh because i'm the head coach of our 14u squad obviously we have six teams total but I'm the head coach of that one, and so all of our kids on there have a sleeve that we're at 100% of the time when they're playing catch, when they're with us or without us, you know, at home just playing catch in the backyard or whatever. We're going to track all their throws and see if we can roll it out organization-wide next year. Is it easy to interpret the data that you get from it? Does uh, it come out in a form that makes it easy to figure out what's going on? Yeah, it's getting it's getting it's gotten a lot better now that we've gotten our feet wet. Really, just there've been issues just getting like everything connected and get everyone's everything synced. All the data getting dumped into the right spot. Um, you know, there's just growing pains with that. Making sure kids put the sensors in right. And there's all this different stuff. Had mm-hmm. them charge so kids would throw 
they'd come in, they'd throw, and then we realized that their thing was out of battery, just like little little details. But it uh, it simplifies it now where I was trying to figure out for a while, like, okay, this kid has more stress than another kid. You know, it's reading more uh, elbow torque. Well, what does that mean? How do we get him lower? Well, it's not they're saying it's not as much about getting it lower as it is just keeping their workload constant. So they're not having huge fluctuations of their workload to, you know, reduce fatigue. So their elbow flexors and everything else just can kind of protect the joint. So really it doesn't matter what their stress level is natively, just as long as we kind of keep their workload constant. Mm-hmm. So that's the bigger thing when, mm-hmm. and kids are, they're already kind of shocked. You know, we'd have an inner squad practice with two of our teams, the 13 and 14 U and, you know, we did ground balls. They played catch. Uh, you know, we had like a, an eight or nine inning inner squad, and the amount of throws for a kid that played shortstop that day was like 175. If you know, with one inning on the mound, and it's just all the warm ups, all the warm between innings. You know, we did some ground balls. They made like 20 throws across the diamonds. So just like all that cumulative, even though they're not hard throws, still adds up. It's a yeah, lot. Sure. So just tracking all that and keeping all of them in the bank, and Modus doesn't. You know, a soft throw is not the same as a hard throw, obviously, so they take all of it into account. But it spits out just kind of like a readiness factor, and it tells you their workload. So I, as a coach, can monitor, you know, okay, we're going to give you an off day here so we get you kind of back down within in their parameters. And mm-hmm. so it's interesting. It's uh, I think the bigger I think the bigger hurdle for them is just getting people bought into it and up and running because it's just a, it's a lot more management rather yeah. than just go out and maybe count pitches and don't count when they play catch and all that stuff. It just becomes more of a, a constant thing you have to do. So right. I think people are buy-in is one of the big ones, you know, just getting them, getting them to move on it. So yeah. that's good. Yeah. So let's talk about rule changes in major league baseball. You're, so you're a big baseball fan. What do you think of pace of play? Cause this is a really, it, it's a, I think it's a shockingly polarizing topic. Um, well, I guess uh, I suppose it just depends. I mean, if I'm watching, if I'm watching the Red Sox play, that's different than if I'm watching anything else. If I'm watching the Red Sox play, I, pace of play simply doesn't enter into it for me at all. I'm just so caught up in the game that uh, you know, you know, if the game is slowed down a little bit, it really doesn't bother me at all. If I'm just casually watching another game, just because I'm, you know just because I like baseball and I'm watching it, then I guess it does bother me when there seems to be unnecessary trips to the mound. Uh, uh, but it doesn't bother me to the point where I think there really needs to be any radical changes. Um, you know, they're, one of the things they're talking about now is uh, if the game goes into extra innings that you start with a runner on second base, I think that's the worst idea I could ever imagine yeah. I mean, people, this, it seems to me there's nothing more exciting than an extra game. I mean, that means the game is close, right? And, you know, uh, everything, you know, every at-bat counts. And so to somehow upset that by, you know, just upset the rules of the game by putting a runner on second base, it strikes me as crazy. Regarding the, you know, the number of mound conferences, I just don't even see how they're going to be able to enforce that. I guess maybe they'll figure it out in time. I suspect that uh, – I guess they're going to be using that this year. Yeah. Uh, my guess is there'll be lots of hiccups along the way, and maybe eventually they'll get it all sorted out. And I don't I don't object to that particularly, uh, reducing the number of mound visits. 
the thing that takes a lot of time is when when you change pitchers. I mean that you know that's a big big delay, but it's also part of the game. I mean you know strategically bringing a relief pitcher in or tactically, I mean in in a certain situation that that is it seems to me is an integral part of the game. Uh, so I, I'm you know I don't I. I guess I'm more of a traditionalist in that mm-hmm. I, I would rather them just not mess around with those kinds of rules at all. Yeah. Well, I don't see how they can do the runner on second base thing because of stats. Like, if I'm pitching and there's a runner on second, how does that work for my stats? Do Did I give up that run? Does that go in my ERA? Because that matters to me. Yeah, somebody, somebody actually posted something on Twitter remarking that you could, in principle, pitch a perfect game and lose it. You know, it goes into extra innings, the runner on second base, yeah, followed by two well or yeah. two sacrifice flies. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> that's bizarre. Yeah, it I is. About that. That's I mean, it, somehow that doesn't seem right. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know. My, it, like I said, I, I found it interesting how many people are just like, there's no one who's kind of lukewarm about it. They're either like really passionate, like this is ridiculous, the game doesn't need to change, or, um, and I, I don't know. I feel like my point of view is skewed because I have a, a very, small keyhole that I watch baseball through, but just like as a player for so long, I just got a extra innings, extra inning games do not excite me. They inspire groans in me. They're just, uh, the last thing we wanted is to go into extras after, you know, well, you know, that interesting perspective. I, I actually wonder, I, I have, I've wondered about that. I mean, this, the major league season is a long season and, and then when you add on to that extra inning games, it's late, it's nighttime, uh, I, I just wonder, it really must, the, the players must just get exhausted after a while. Now, of course, they are athletes, and this is what, this is what they do for a living. But still, that's, it strikes me as being pretty tough on the players. Yeah, and especially depending on the level. So if you're in the major leagues and they do that, they have a, like, a couple extra in games, they'll put a couple, you know, maybe they'll like put a guy off the 25-man roster, call a couple arms up. But if you're like, especially an, an independent player like I was, there's no farm system. So if we go to extras and four other guys have to throw because we go into the 12th or 13th or something, our bullpen is just depleted for a while. Like we just have to struggle to catch up. Right. And hopefully our next off day is coming up soon so we can all start to catch back up. So that's that's tough. Um, the same issue with uh, if we get rained out. Like getting rained out is nice because you get a day off kind of, but – then you have to make that game up. You have a doubleheader. Now you have to burn a reliever starting one of those games usually, or just the rotation gets messed up and everyone all gets depleted again. Right. Um, so it's just rough. It's it's a lot better as the home team when you're in extras because there is that excitement where, okay, we put up a zero in the top. Now we got a chance to win it. But when you're the visiting team, you're just like defending the whole time. And it's just, you know, right. you're going out there as a relief pitcher, <clears throat> hoping you can put up a zero so the game doesn't end which is fundamentally different than going out there and trying to win a game, you know? Right. That's that's yeah. the one thing which is just that's an advantage of being a home team, especially in right. extra innings. Right. There is another thing that's sort of changing in baseball uh, which is uh, extending the the protective netting in the, in the stands. Yeah. Where you know they they had a change a couple of years ago where they um, I think now every team has to have it the, the netting extend uh, to the home plate side of each dugout. But now a lot of teams are sort of taking the initiative to extend it beyond that. 
typically on the far side of the dugout, the uh, the opposite side of uh, the home plate side. And I, I, and I, that's another thing that that people are quite polarized in their views of. Which I don't understand. Have I, they ever? Have they not seen people get hit by these foul yeah, balls? I, I, yeah, no, I, I'm Ugh. definitely uh, in in favor of extending that netting and trying to protect people. I, I, I realize that people, you know, you pay for your seat. You look at that thing on the back of the ticket that says, you know, <laughs> uh, you're in the, you, know, you, you could get hit by something. And so people take their chance. But still, I just don't, I, I, I just, to me, it really does not bother me if I'm looking through netting. After the first couple of minutes, I barely know that it's there anymore. And it's thinner, like the netting, they have this really high tech, like Kevlar kind of fibers now where they're really thin nets compared yeah. to like a batting cage if you go to like your local batting cage like a, a fence yeah where after a while i think your brain just sort of blends it in right yeah absolutely the brain is pretty remarkable at sort of filtering out noise and uh of course nowadays the dangers used to be the dangers were the base you know getting hit by a batted ball now you could get hit by a piece of a bat that's flying into the stands which it seems like they've curbed that a little bit like with the the ink dot test like that's right so they a, a few deal. years ago they uh so the, the the problem was with maple bats and the grain uh it's hard to see the grain on the maple bat uh and the one of the reasons that the bat was breaking into multiple pieces was that if the grain is curved, it tends to break along that curve and it, it shears off a piece and the piece of the barrel goes flying with a very sharp yeah, edge jacket. goes flying. And so they, they have this, this ink dot that's supposed to show you the way that grain is going. Uh, and there's rules now about how the so-called slope of grain rules. And that has improved things. It now, seems I, like I, it has, yeah. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen numbers, but people who have seen those numbers have told me that it, it really has improved things a lot. Yeah. And it's interesting just with hitters, you know, like my first year when I played in the Frontier League, which is like a rookie-level league, how many hitters just they break a lot of bats and then when I got to older levels like the Atlantic League where I played my last three seasons there's a lot of guys who played in you know multiple seasons in double-a triple-a the majors how few how infrequently they break bats compared to rookie level players it's because they're better at barreling the ball up more consistently when they get fooled they don't get fooled nearly as much I broke so many more bats as a pitcher in the Frontier League than I did in the Atlantic League because again most of those guys are using maple which are they're tougher to break but even then, they're just better at either not swinging at pitches that would break their bat or, B, getting a little more of their barrel on it when they do swing. Right. So it's, it's interesting just to see that. I don't think people appreciate how hard it is to break a major leaguer's bat. Like, those guys are the best in the world at getting the barrel to it. Right. And it's, uh, you know, with those tough maples, it's just not that easy. But I don't know. I mean, I just – I personally, with a couple of times I've been to watch games in the last five years, I just don't feel super comfortable out there because I've seen people get hit and they're they're rockets. And whether you're like an athletic guy or whatever, I'm not. If I'm there watching a game, I'm going to be looking over at whoever I'm with. I'm going to be talking. I'm going to look at my phone. I'm going to do all these different things. Look at the scoreboard. At any moment, that could be the moment where a, fl a ball comes off the bat, and then I'm just screwed if it's going to hit me. Right. Like your attention has to be on the hitter at that exact moment, watching the ball. And even then, you know, like the curvature of a foul ball, they're all slicing. They're hooking. Right. They're diving. Right. You're in this little box, this little tiny seat where you can't necessarily get out of the way. Someone stands up in front of you, right. hooks over their shoulder. Right. It's just yeah, no, it's I don't. Uh, it's, I don't it's, it's dangerous, and uh, uh, yeah, I I 
I completely agree. You know, th- th- there seems to be, it, it seems to be the case that people who do get hit by a batted ball in the stands have no legal recourse. Yeah, they uh, never, they never win. H- however, it is true, because I've been involved with this a little bit, uh, there's been in the last few years a number of lawsuits initiated by such people uh, despite the fact that the courts in the past have ruled against against them, so we'll see how that turns out. But yeah. uh, 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 people are starting to pay much more attention to this, and I think rightly so. Yeah, the one thing I was I was reading about this morning was about the uh, the minor league pay rules and how there's a couple lawsuits and that Congress is potentially passing a spending bill that they're trying to get, or it's maybe already added to the bill. This language that will exempt Major League Baseball from fair trade practices. Have you heard about this? No, I actually have not. I mean, uh, basically, if you obviously there's been a bunch of lawsuits in the last, I guess, seven years where minor leaguers collectively are suing, saying that, hey, we work very long hours. We get paid less than minimum wage, which is 100% true. If you take, I made $600 a month my first year. Um, the average minor league team pays 1100 bucks a month, something like that. So if you take that 1100 bucks a month plus all the hours they're expected to put in, they don't get paid in the offseason. Uh, all these different factors, they're just, I mean, you're paid less than a, you made seven, eight grand for a whole minor league season. You're paid less than a fast food worker. And so these lawsuits say, hey, like we should be paid fairly and these trade practices are illegal. And it would only, I think they said it would cost me like $5 million a team to, I don't know what, maybe get them up to minimum wage based on the hours that they worked. But, you know, it's the amount they throw away on free agents. It just seems crazy that right. obviously I understand as a business, you never want to pay someone more than you have to. Like, I completely understand that. But at the same time, you, you think there's still like tertiary benefits where if you pay all your minor, leagues, minor leaguers better, they can take better care of themselves. They can stay in the game longer. You'll get some guys who maybe could make it and be valuable at the big league level who just can't keep going because all these different factors. I have to support my family. I have to support a new wife or baby on the way. I need some savings long-term. I'm paying off student loans, all these different things. Right. You know, how many times someone in the family gets sick and guy has to drop out of the race because he needs to take care of his family. Like, it's, it's a reasonable thing. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Look, you, you know <laughs> better than most. I mean, it's, it's tough playing minor league ball. I mean, uh, uh, and unaffiliated must be especially tough. Yeah, I mean, you could pay a little less. I mean, and there's none of that free agent stuff. You know, once you get to the six-year free agency in the minor leagues, they'll resign you for five to fifteen thousand a month. So I had some teammates who made good money. They were still hanging on because they make almost six figures in a minor league season. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they get signed, go back to AAA out of the independent leagues. They'll make thirty grand for two months. But that's by far the exception. There's like the one percenters of minor leaguers even. Right. So it's just it's just tough, but I don't know what uh. So what's what's the news on your Red Sox? Give us the give us the Nathan report. <laughs> well, I've been you know I've been sort of following them uh, during the spring training. Uh, you know they've got uh, uh, their starting pitching is uh, mostly what it was last year. Hopefully, David Price has a better season. Uh, Chris Sale will be Chris Sale, and hopefully he'll be Chris Sale for longer into the season than he was last year. Uh, uh, 
So I, I, the, I think the starting pitching is probably in good shape. The bullpen's in good shape. The pickup of J.D. Martinez was very, very good. Um, and I think Dombrowski, Dave Dombrowski, did a good job of patiently playing the waiting game, trying to sign him. And in the end, he, uh, Dombrowski, you know, they, they, it seems everyone was happy with, with the deal that eventually came out of it. And I think he will be a monster in Fenway Park. Uh, I think he will, yeah. he, he will be popping them out left and right. Uh, he's, I think he has the right swing for it. He, he, de- he definitely elevates the ball, and uh, it, he'll, he'll hit a lot over the left field wall. Uh, so I think things look good. But, of course, you know, uh, it's, it's going to be hard to catch the Yankees, I think. The Yankees really have a superb team. And they're, they, they, they are go- they're going to have a superb team for many years to come. And they've got a very, very strong minor league system. They've got a lot yeah. of good prospects. The Red Sox uh, had a very great, you know, very good prospects a, a, a few years ago but now it's pretty much all depleted I mean a lot of them are playing for the Red Sox but a lot of them were traded away you know we traded away people for Chris Sale for example uh, so the Red Sox have about a two-year window to which to do something I think they've got two more years of Chris Sale before he becomes a free agent they pretty much have only two years of J.D. Martinez because there's an opt-out after the second year uh, so if he if he plays as well as they hope he plays, he'll probably opt out and yeah. go for a bigger contract. So they've got a two year window in which to do something. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I had hoped to be down in uh, Florida sometime this month, but it looks like it's not going to happen. So I'll look forward to seeing them probably when they come to Chicago. When, and I don't remember when that is, but uh, and then later in the summer at the Saber Seminar. Yeah. So what's uh, what's brewing with Saber Seminar for this year? Well, uh, the dates are set. I think it's August 5th and 6th. It's the first weekend in, uh, in August. And they like, to have it, uh, they like to have it the first available weekend after the trade deadline. That's when, when they're most likely to get uh, teams uh, send people there. Otherwise, mm-hmm. before that, they're just too busy. Uh, and it turns out the Yankees are going to be in town for that weekend, so oh, nice. uh, you know it'll there'll be some good baseball to watch. So yeah, the uh, the the dates have been announced. Uh, the uh, uh, abstract submission is is in progress. I think the deadline for that is April fifteenth. So all 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 you future saberists out there <laughs> who want to write an abstract, please do so and send it in. I mean this is. Uh, this continues to be the highlight of my own summer. I, the, we've been doing this since 2000, 2011, and I've gone to every one of them and have enjoyed it immensely. So, yeah, it was a good time. I, uh, met some, we met some good people, and we had a little demo out in the courtyard with uh, Kevin and Dave, who Dave Fisher is the one who threw. He's actually assistant coach at Rhode Island with Kevin Vance mm-hmm. now, which is yep. cool. So he's kind of called on. I know Kiri, who presented, she got a job with, I think, the Yankees? I don't remember. I'll have to, I'll have to verify it with her, but um, it seems like a lot of people. I think Julia. I think I saw via Twitter got uh, a job as an analyst with the Cardinals. Maybe she's with the Cardinals. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of good things came out of it, which is cool. Yeah. I liked her talk with Bartolo Colon and all that stuff. Right. That was, that was fun. Uh, you know, it's been it's been the case that a lot of the people who have their sort of initial exposure 
at the Save a Seminar, giving a, giving a talk there, uh, have ended up with major league teams. It's really pretty incredible record. Yeah. So it's a great opportunity. It's a, it's a, you know, there's this so-called Sabre Analytics Conference, which took place, uh, I guess, a week, weekend ago uh, in Phoenix. That's a much bigger deal kind of thing. It's a very big conference, uh, very well supported by the by major league teams. They they send a lot of people there. But it's 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 in a sense it's too big. It's it's very when when it gets too big, it's it, it's very hard to find the right people to talk with. Mm-hmm. The nice thing about Saber Seminar is it's just I think it's just the right size, so that. Uh, it's, it's easy to, there's a lot of sort of informal time. A little where more approachable. You could, well, yeah, people are very approachable. You know, it's, it's the middle of the summer, so it's, you know, everyone's casually dressed. Uh, and it, it just becomes uh, very, very easy to try to network with people, try to meet people, and try to make an impression on, you know, by giving a talk and that sort of thing. Yeah, and it's nice to give the uh, you know the newcomers a voice too. Just like myself, I was thankful to speak there last year. But when it you know, I guess when you get to the bigger conferences, you attract bigger names and right. some of the small. Folks so don't the, get their I, I think the, the the principal emphasis of the Saber Analytics Conference, the one that's in Phoenix, is uh, these panels. And uh, well, panels are nice, and they get a lot of big name people, and there's a lot of you know you get a lot of insidey. In, inside gossipy kind of information, that sort of thing. And they do some of that at Sabre Seminar, but I think at Sabre Seminar they find, I think, the right balance between panel discussions and research talks. It mm-hmm. really is the right balance. So I'm, I'm very pleased with it and looking forward to going there again this year. Yeah. So how do you stay in touch with, with the baseball community here at U of I now? So I know you said you have a, um, one of your research assistants he's, who spoke there last year, but... You know, you go to a lot of UOI games, your communication with their team a lot, but what other things are, besides your uh, legendary tweeting, um, what are you busy with these days? Well, uh, so uh, uh, one of the things, I don't know. I, don't I feel like we have to talk about Stephen Hawking at some point. Today. Oh, all right. Yeah, we can do that. Uh, one of the things that uh, I uh, did last year, and it's still ongoing to some extent, and it's probably no secret. So Major League Baseball uh, put together a committee of uh, mostly academics, okay, to try to to study this ho- home run search. So this this happened right around the time of the Sabre Seminar last year when we were is when we were starting to organize ourselves sometime in, in August, and we spent the a big chunk of our time for the remainder of the year, doing uh, extensive studies of uh, this home run surge. And I I can't reveal any results because the report we wrote is not yet public, but hopefully it will be made public sometime soon. But we we studied, we looked at StatCast data. We uh, had, we did our own laboratory measurements of properties of the baseballs, the seam height, the coefficient of restitution, drag coefficients. Uh, I, I, I like to think that we left no stone unturned in, in trying to uh, sort of look at this and try to understand why there was such an increase in home runs. And we even visited the, the, uh, 
the factory where the baseballs are made in Costa Rica. I was actually just going to ask you about. So tell me about that experience. I've oh, seen that was a, like... it. Was a very interesting. So I, there was a, the, the whole committee did not go there. A subset of the committee went. I, I was one of them, and um, uh, it's in a place called Torrealba, Costa Rica. So it's it's a bit of a drive. It's a long drive from the capital city where we flew into. So. Uh, it, it took a while to get there, and the roads are not great, and there's a lot of traffic when, you know, when you're in the capital city. It, it took forever, it seemed, just to get out of the capital city, San Jose. But uh, uh, I came around, you know, I, I went there with open eyes. I didn't know what to expect, and uh, I, we learned a lot. I learned a lot about how the baseballs are made. About I, I, I got the distinct impression that a lot of, of care goes into making a major league baseball. Um, so we saw pretty much the whole thing from, uh, we didn't see, we did not, there, there is a separate uh, factory in a different location in Costa Rica where they make the so-called pill, the innermost rubber uh -huh. rubber thing. We didn't see them make that, but so those are delivered to the place in Torrealba. And then we saw the whole thing from start to finish. They wind it, wind it with yarn. All the all the winding. We we saw yeah the winding, uh, the stitching, which is all done which, by hand. That's crazy to me. They it's, still it's, stitch it's, it by it's, hand. It's all done by hand, and every single baseball is inspected visually. They they look at and there you know eat. There's a huge huge room filled with people who are doing nothing other than stitching the baseball, and they pay very close attention to, you know, ergonomics that, you know, they make sure people are taking breaks. You know, it's a pretty tedious job. Yeah, and sure. the people, I, I think people who are do it, doing it, who have been doing it for a while become really, really good at it. But every single baseball is inspected. Uh, you know, they're especially looking at those seams to make sure that they're, you know, tight and, you know, uh, n nothing, nothing uh, funny is going on with them. Uh, and uh, the the it's a pretty remarkable process, and I, I I was very very impressed with with the whole thing. A lot of the testing is done there. Some of the testing is done at the Rawlings uh, test facility, which is in the St. Louis suburbs. Anyway, I, I, I learned a lot, and uh, as I said, we're not uh, not allowed to, to to reveal any results from our studies, but we 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 learned a lot uh, about what about the the baseball itself uh about about the home run surge and uh and there's so there's some follow-up work that's being done uh largely by uh the test lab where we're doing some additional testing uh and hopefully that'll get completed within a couple of weeks and then i think at that point I, i'm hopeful that the commissioner will release the report Interesting. So where would they be able to find that, do you think? Well, I'm sure it'll be just like blasted around and it'll be like, sure they finally figured I'm out I'm sure it what will happened. be. Yeah, you won't have any trouble figuring out uh, how, how, how to read the report. I don't know whether they will release the entire report, which is very, very long, uh, uh, or whether they will just uh, release the segment. I mean, we wrote, you know, there, there was a, sort of an executive summary, which was maybe a five or six page document followed by, you know, 80 more pages of stuff. Mm -hmm. So the, it's pretty lengthy. And I suspect most people would 
be we're finding a bit daunting. I'm not going to read 86 pages. There, but the, but, but we, we did, I think we did a good job of, of summarizing in, in this executive summary our findings and our recommendations. Actually, so one of the recommendations is already being implemented. Uh, the recommend, we, uh, one of the things became very clear to us is uh, that uh, the coefficient of restitution of the baseball, which plays a key role in, in the ball bat collision and determining what the exit speed is, uh, one of the things we learned is that it's very dependent on the humidity in which the balls have been stored. I mean, that's the whole point behind the yeah. humidor, for example. And the other thing we learned is that they're really, other than Coors Field, where they have a humidor, and, and soon, uh, uh, or now, uh, Chase Field in, in, in Arizona, there are no standards in, as to how the baseballs are stored. They can be stored, uh, they could be stored however the team wants to store them. Well, now, uh, just in the last month or so, there's a directive from Major League Baseball that every team is required to monitor. They're not required to store them in a fixed environment, but they're required to monitor the environment, temperature and humidity under which they've been stored. And I think Major League Baseball will now gather all that information uh, for the upcoming season and then use that as part of their decision-making process with an eye possibly towards requiring every team to store baseballs in a humidor. Hmm. But that, that's in the future. But this is the first step. And that was one of our recommendations. Yeah. And so that, that's already being implemented. That's interesting. I mean, there's so many factors involved in just baseball in general. You wonder how many of them they can then start to narrow down, like the grass in the infield. So if you have like a Bermuda grass surface, you know, maybe an 86 mile per hour grounder gets through the hole. Whereas if you yeah. have another place, maybe it takes 89 miles per hour with thicker grass to get that yeah. ball through the hole. Well, you know, there are stories from the old days, and I, I suspect it's still true, that, that groundskeepers, uh, you know, sort of prepared the surface to best it, uh, advantage the, the home team. Mm -hmm. You know, fast infield, you know, if you've got, you know, if that's the kind of team you have or slow infield yeah. or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, there is no standardization. I think standardizing how the baseball is stored, I really do think is a good idea. Some people have asked, well, what about building a standard stadium with standard dimensions? Eh, that take all the fun out of it. That would actually, that yeah. would definitely take all the fun. I, 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 that's one of the charms of baseball is that every yeah. stadium is unique in that regard. But the equipment shouldn't be unique. The equipment should be standardized, mm -hmm. so, in my view. Yeah, I mean... We still get enough with all the crazy custom <coughs> colors. You can get a custom aluminum bat now. Uh, custom custom aluminum bats with your, your name like okay. anodized on it. Okay. The colors that you want, the pattern that you want. Just everything well, if, if it's out of control. People are willing to pay for it, I guess, you know, <laughs> whatever yeah, so suits They them. won't perform any better, but you'll look better. Well, you know, it's very interesting because I, I, as I've told you, I, I was involved now, you know, for a long time in regulating bat performance. And one of the things, stories you read about is uh, you, you, uh, you take uh, two essentially identical bats, one of which just is ordinary graphics on it, and the other which is painted in some cool colors with mm -hmm. lightning bolts on it or whatever, and you ask which performs better they always choose regardless of the fact that they're identical they always choose the coolest looking one to be the better performing one yeah 
What well, can you What can you make of that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, they say look good, play good, but <laughs> right. I mean, if you have two steaks in front of you, one's got amazing grill marks on it and a little, you know, like salt and parsley on it, and you have a very bland looking one that was cooked in a, I don't know, like a microwave. But say that one was actually juicier, like a better cut of meat. Which yeah, one would you no, pick? No, perceptions. You are know, somehow important. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, baseball players are flashier than ever. We try to limit that a little bit on our team, so they don't have. You know, too many neon necklaces and armbands and earrings, and it's kind of out of control. But right. it's uh, it's it's funding all the the changes. I mean, it seems like as soon as you quit, they like all the the new. You know, like when you leave college, they put a new huge athletic center. They redo the field. Like it seems like every time you move on in life, everything behind you kind of gets, gets better. Gets right? Better. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the cleats and shoes they have now. I'm like, oh man, I wish I could keep playing so I could wear those turfs they look so nice but you know it is interesting just how everything's changing so i don't know i mean we're not getting a flight scope on our facility but you know a couple of years from now we'll probably maybe implement some of that stuff a little more i know rapsodo is a, a good reasonable not too expensive solution i, th- I think it is like, what nineteen thousand yeah. dollars for flight scope something like that yeah i think that's about yeah. right it, which is cheaper a lot cheaper actually than trackman which is one of yeah. the attractions what, one of the other attractions i think of a flight scope uh and, and i think was one of the deciding factors for the illini was that since flight scope is not as big they don't have as many customers as trackman at least for the time being, you get more personalized attention. Mm-hmm. I think with TrackMan, one of the problems is they grew very, very rapidly. And <clears throat> uh, they, I think their, their personnel, their people resources that they have, human resources, uh, wasn't always able to keep up with uh, the number of units they had out there. So, and, 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 and much of their effort is going to Major League Baseball. As yeah. it probably should, because that's where they're, you know, that's their biggest customer right now. So if you're a, a college team, you probably don't get a whole lot of personalized attention. With Flight Scope, it was different. Uh, Rapsodo, I think, is also grown pretty pretty rapidly. I mean, so you and I saw this one demo of, from a f- few years ago, the first one we saw, mm-hmm. and it didn't seem to work very well. And then a year later, they came back, and it seemed to work really well, work much yeah. better. And now they've got their hitting unit. Mm-hmm. which I have not actually, I saw it at the Sabre seminar, but I haven't seen it actually, anyone actually use it in a, in a, in a real situation. Uh, and I, I would, I, I think that shows great promise. Uh, and ultimately I, I think they're probably, their goal is to integrate the hitting unit and the pitching unit into one unit at some point. I don't know when that's going to happen, but that company is, per, has has made very, very good progress. And I think it, it really is much more affordable. What is probably $3,000 $3, or something. Yeah. yeah. Something like that. Much becomes much more affordable for a small facility like, like your own, for example. Yeah. Especially when you anchor it against, you know, Oh, TrackMan's 50,000. Flight scope's 20,000. Oh, 3,000. What a bargain. It looks like know? a bargain. Right? Price anchoring. Yeah. But there's a, there's another unit, which, which has not made a lot of waves yet. It's very similar conceptually to, uh, to Rapsodo, it's called Yakertech. Have you heard of it? It's got a terrible name, but I have not. Yeah, yeah, it's called Yakertech, and I think there is some Canadian company that I, I, I actually met with uh, the CEO of this company. He was passing through here uh, a year or so ago, and I spent an afternoon talking with him. 
And uh, I, again, I haven't seen it in operation, and I think they haven't really made the big marketing push yet. I think they're still trying to perfect it. But it, it works very similarly to, uh, to Rapsodo. Okay. Uh, and I think they were probably set up at ABCA. I, I didn't go, so I don't yeah, know. Yeah, we were only there for about a day, so we didn't get to wander to all the expo booths. But, man, there's just, like, a ton of technology at the ABCA when they go out there. Yeah, so I had hoped – I actually had hoped to go this year because it was just in Indianapolis. But mm-hmm. uh, it sort of conflicted with my trip to Florida, so I decided – It was a sunshine cold was weekend, more so, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Um yeah, I don't know. Have you have you been to Top Golf? You know Top Golf is. No. So no. I don't know whose technology they use, but Top Golf is this amazing like driving range where they have this huge thing. It has these different huge targets in it. So you hit your golf ball, it'll go into one of these targets, and it'll give you points for it. So you play like different games against your buddies, and it's kind of got like a Buffalo Wild Wings atmosphere. So you have couches, you all get up and it hits, but it tracks your ball as soon as you hit it. So it'll tell you you went 247 yards, it landed in this spot. You got. 13 points for it or whatever and it's a pretty cool interactive game and i think their technology is like right underneath the platform so it's tracking it i think there's a microchip in the ball too what i heard i'm not an expert on their technology but that's like one of those things where you know just like hit tracks they're tracking it i think it's probably the same company but i don't know by the way speaking of microchip in the ball uh so you're familiar probably with a blast and the diamond kinetics Mm -hmm. thing so diamond kinetics has actually come out with a new product just recently, just in the last few weeks, in which they have had Rawlings build for them special baseballs with the, a tracking device, m- much like the tracking device that they have uh, in the thing for tracking the bat, the, the uh, mm-hmm. swing tracker. Uh, they, a similar device uh, inside the baseball that can measure speed and spin, and I guess spin axis. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's got accelerometers and gyroscopes and whatever else in there with a wireless readout, probably a Bluetooth readout. And again, I have not actually seen this in operation. And they're, they're, if you follow their tweets, you'll, they've, they've been tweeting about it quite a bit in the last week or so. Uh, but that's something to keep an eye on. It, you, uh, it would be, I think it would be great for a facility like yours uh, where there's a big emphasis on pitching uh, you can't hit it because you'd destroy it if you hit it, but you can pitch. Uh, is it, it a leather? Is a, I'm curious about the construction of it. Is it leather? Well, it's, it looks like a regular ba- – as far as I know, it looks like – you, you would not know that it was a special baseball. It looks, looks just like a regular baseball. They must have had to mess around with the weight of it just a little bit. I, I, I mean, I think these, uh, the thing that's inside, the sensors inside probably don't weigh very much, but they probably had to compensate somewhere else with the yeah. weight. Uh, but you, you, can't, you can't hit it because the, the instrumentation is too delicate for that. Uh, although at some point they may very well come up with something that would be robust enough to withstand the kind of hmm. bat collision that, that would happen. But, and I don't even know what these things are selling for, but it's probably yeah. worth looking into. Uh, yeah, no, I'm definitely going to. That's interesting just to see. Because with a leather ball, even within a facility like mine where it's never going to touch dirt, uh, we actually had dirt mounds. We got rid of them. But you wonder how long the shelf life of a ball like that is. Yeah, I, I, it I don't. to get too right. kind of gross to use. Exactly. And so the, the question is, can they build these things cheap enough so that, you know, you could go through a bunch of them in the course of a, of mm-hmm. a season. That's uh, interesting. And I, I, I don't know the answer to that. Hmm. I, 
I don't know how much these things cost. I know their bat sensor units cost like 150 bucks. Yeah. And I would think that this would probably end up costing something similar, but w so it would be a little too expensive to have many of them, but yeah, um, I'm really, I'm going to look this up for sure. And we're done. So I'm, I don't know what the price point for me as an Academy owner would be for a ball. That's going to be perishable. Cause even a, like a brand new white ball, like for example, if you throw to a catcher with a black mitt, that ink comes off on the ball where you have a, a shiny kind of darkened ball yeah. after one bullpen. Yeah. And after five or six, if you're still have a, a black mitt, that ball is kind of dark and tough to use and they get, kind of gross so you yeah, wonder it, how long it's going to go yeah if it's not too expensive it might uh you, you they might even be able to give you a demo ball just to yeah, try out yeah if you're listening diamond kinetics i want a demo ball. all right <laughs> that sounds cool but yeah i'm sure i'm sure they've thought about that all you know because it's going to be a perishable kind of product so right it's like 30 bucks a ball it might be 30 would, I don't 30 know. would be that seems would reasonable be not, but, but a couple I, months out of it you know you go through a couple in a year something like that i don't know interesting yeah, I know. Uh, you do remember the uh, they had a radar ball a long time ago, like 10, 15 years ago when I was a kid. It was like a, I think maybe a Rawlings product, the radar ball. You throw it, and it would like tell you. It was like a like a, one of those eight, eight balls. That you, how I, hard did I, I throw? Think, it just comes I actually, up 96. I think I had one of those at one point, and I didn't think. I don't it was, think they worked very well. I didn't think. They I don't know how good it possibly worked. But there was this thing called Revfire. Do you remember? Do you remember? Yeah, that? a lot of softball players use that. Yeah, Never and really I I baseball. actually bought one of those. Uh, a while ago and played around with it for a day and then, then put it in my closet and never touched it again. And this guy I know who's sort of a fast pitch softball coach, he trains, he trains uh, women's softball pitchers, young pitchers. Uh, he, he asked me if I had one, whether I wanted to sell it. I, I said, well, if you want it, you know, pay me whatever you think is worth. So I sold it to him. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I never thought that those things worked very well either. But m maybe I would, you know, I, I think people especially are interested in measuring the spin with it. Yeah. And even if the spin is wrong, if it's going to be relatively wrong, so they know like, hey, you throw this on this if ball. If it's consistent. It's yeah. Long, it's consistency We've is more seen important. We've increase, yeah. yeah. So that, I feel like that makes sense. Because I know that has been a, bit, a popular softball um, pitching device. They're trying to measure spin and help girls increase it. And mm -hmm. they throw so many different pitches that all seem to me kind of the same <laughs> curve, drop curve, you know, arm curve, leg curve. They, I don't know. They, but they actually, one of the things, yeah, what a curious thing is, pitching is they have, a, they have a lot of different names for their pitches. I mean, the repertoire, the total number of pitches, pitches, types of pitches in softball seems to be greater than in baseball. Mm -hmm. You know, in baseball, you got five or six maybe. But there seems to be lots and lots of different types of pitches that, that are thrown. Yeah. And still a really dominant pitching game. I mean, especially really, well, at least yes. at the top. I mean, I think there was a girl who struck out all 21 in Division One softball this year. I well, saw I a headline. I can't know, remember what school. Yeah, it but is. I mean, yeah. yeah. Runs are tough to come by. Yeah. A lot of small ball is played. Yeah. Well, any – Closing thoughts for our listeners? No, uh, it's just that, uh, wow, two more weeks to opening day or thereabouts, so I'm looking forward to it. And, yeah. of course, looking forward to sunshine <laughs> so we can all get out there and, you know, watch Getting some close. baseball. Yeah. yeah. All right, Dr. Nathan, well, thanks again for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for coming over. Enjoy talking with you. All righty. We'll catch you next week on Dear Baseball Gods. All right. <laughs>